Why don't we go to church? I love that he made me think about that again. Too much story. Every time I hear, and then, there's another chance for the ladies at home to misunderstand. So we finally have an answer to the question, what makes Don Draper smile? I don't need you to put your little swirl on top of my idea. Well, he knows how to leave a room. My goodness, Sally Draper, try not to take everything so personally. You really pour the honey on, then you lick it off. See? It all works out. He's loyal, charming, quiet but not modest. Why should he be? Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly, it doesn't anymore. Each week we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015, and we're changing the conversation of the show all these years later, where one of us is a first-time watcher of the show, one of us went through it one time back when it was airing, and there's me, who watches it while doing laundry and catching my husband in a decades-long conspiracy. I'm John Negroni, and uh, oh, Will Ashton, it looks like you lost this podcast, it was such a a great idea well you know it's always in the last place you look <laughs> yeah i mean I, I was also going to comment on the fact that you often call us a weekly podcast when it's luckily if this comes out once a month let alone <laughs> once every other month let alone once every three months at this point we record it once a week though right i mean yeah we record pretty frequently but yeah now like they're what like now going to be five in the can and look it is yeah. hard to edit these episodes i don't think you guys appreciate and understand how hard it is to edit these it just takes a long time there's just too much romps like too many inside jokes so you have I don't, to i don't have explain. the producer it's 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 tricky stuff but uh oh before i forget mike overholz you really like to podcast the honey on and lick it off are you a are you a fabric softener guy, John? Tell me about your laundry habits. I only have one more. The faintest ink is better than the best podcast. That's true. Um, today we're talking about the color blue, which is season three, episode ten. After this episode, we only have three to go before the season finale. Hey. And uh, say again, I was gonna say uh, you're too busy talking. I wanted to do the you know you say say the, the color blue again. Color blue. Dava d dava die dava d dava die. It's, it's blue and you're feeling all right, huh? Now listen up. Here's so this episode was directed by Michael Uppendahl. It was written by Cater Gordon and Matthew and Weiner. All day and all uh, and Michael Uppendahl, wow, such a great uh, director of the show. You know, season one, he started out uh, not as a director. He had to really convince Matthew Weiner to get into uh, the directing game with this show. But uh, if you might remember Michael Uppendahl's work from season two, which was uh, Six Month Lead. That was episode nine. Great episode of the show i think and uh oh are you done well what are you what are you talking about you're right this is the second episode <laughs> michael uppendahl directed and uh yeah great i think i think he does really good work uh he's really good with actors and as i mentioned Cater gordon uh co-wrote this episode with matthew weiner um i think this is probably one of the last episodes or if not the last episode she ever worked on um because Cater gordon is the writer who uh, was fired from the show uh, accused matthew weiner of sexual misconduct and you know we've talked about that on the show a few times before uh, but yeah i'm not i'm not seeing her in any more credits so this i think this might be the last episode with her Damn, um yeah. what a bummer of a thing to bring up during one of will's best bits he's ever done you son of a bitch <laughs> people couldn't see of course but uh michael overholz was dancing yeah. jiving that whole thing very fun stuff and annoying um <laughs> well will what did you think of the episode i mean this is uh this is definitely a somewhat unconventional episode of mad men would you agree with that yeah it's a little bit slower than the average and uh, not in a bad way like it's just a little bit more contemplative a little bit more withdrawn i guess as far as like 
we don't really have like a super splashy moment. Like you kind of expect with the buildup of this party, there's going to be like a lot of conflict because like, we've spent this whole episode kind of dealing with these little uh, conflicts that are building inside and outside the office, certainly with Betty and Dawn, but also with um, Peggy and uh, what's his face? Um, Paul. Paul. Lane uh, knowing about Sterling Cooper. Lane and sold. his wife. Yeah. And then Roger and Dawn. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, a bunch of stuff's going on here. And yeah, I mean, I think it's been really interesting to see how much this season kind of digs into the home life as much as the, the work life, even more so maybe the, the home life uh, as opposed to the work life and how these uh, characters, particularly with Don and Betty, are kind of losing something if they gain something or vice versa. And, you know, we're coming off of, uh, like, last week, like, Don was just, like, personally and professionally just, you know, down, uh, you know, like, constant disappointment, losing, you know, Hilton, all this stuff. But then now in this episode, he's, you know, getting honored at this 40th anniversary party. Everyone's clapping for him, all this stuff. But then, like, his marriage is potentially uh, imploding for the, you know, the last time or whatever. And, you know, continuing this uh, affair and, and building secrets upon secrets uh even within there and so yeah i mean it's a interesting episode uh maybe not my favorite this season but certainly one i'm excited to uh dig into a little bit more with you fine jets glad you seem to like it uh, i want to mention real quick that uh, i listened to the two commentaries for the episode on the dvd box set uh one of them was of course matthew weiner and michael Luppendahl. uh weiner usually does these and i also listened to elizabeth moss michael gladys and jared harris all together on one of the commentaries and in both of them they both We'll talk about how the the episode itself is really set up with that kind of Hitchcockian tension, uh, very much simmering under the surface. So, yeah, Mike, over to you, of course. I mean, this Damn. episode's <laughs> it's a, a transition lot. episode, right? It absolutely is. I mean, this is another one of those where, you know, typically, again, for listeners, we ourselves try to watch this week by week as we're as we're doing these episodes but this is another one where i just could not help myself um hitchcocking is a great way to put it it does build so much tension and it just leaves you with a ton of anticipation for what comes next and i personally could not help myself i went on and i uh i kept watching i watched several more episodes just because you know it's leading up to you know what we've been waiting for for so long um, there at the end, and I love the uh, I love the the way the the uh, the party scene is filmed in itself. Um, since it's been talked about the entire episode, and then you finally get there, and all the behind the scenes implications that it has, and the, the look Betty gives, you know, not the best episode within itself, but as a in, it, within a string of episodes, you know, one of the strongest I think season enders. Uh, well, part of a season ending arc that the the show will have. When you said like, oh, I couldn't help myself. I just imagined you like really sweaty and just like going into the apartment that is the show, you know, telling us that you're like, oh, I'm I'm off to, uh, you know, watch Ahsoka. And it's like, no, no, no. He's watching an episode of Mad Men again um, behind our backs. And uh, Mad Men is telling Mike to turn over. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, I am drinking some whiskey here. But it is early enough in the day. Um, it's Indian whiskey. I don't know if you guys have ever had Indian whiskey before, but uh, I just took a taste and it is good. I'd give it the same grade I'd give this episode of Batman. Hmm. I'll be. Aren't you like still working right now? Yo, well, can you like be cool? Like, what the hell? <laughs> well, you're just, you know, like Mad Men or whatever, you know, working, drinking on the job. I get it. No, oh, I mean, it's Friday in corporate America. It barely counts. It's also the yeah. summer still. 
I was going to say, I mean, it's not, Labor Day hasn't even happened. I mean, I mean, this episode will probably come out in October, but, um, you know, maybe later. I was going to say October is generous. I think the, <laughs> the actors strike my end before this episode comes out. Dune maybe. 2 will be released before we ever release this episode. Dune, Dune 2 will be finished, as in, like, you could actually watch the entire movie. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I do like this episode. Um, I find you, there's that whole story that... Suzanne tells Don like when they're getting all cuddly and stuff and you know I like their kind of dynamic um and of course we're gonna ask Will here in a second to rate and rank Don's affairs or at least tell us where this one fits in um no no pun intended uh but I I I was kind of curious like about that whole like story she tells about the color blue it was like oh the color blue could mean a different thing to you than it does to me. I think most people have that thought at some point. Um, Matthew Weiner said that he got the idea from his son, the the creepy kid uh, who plays Glenn. Apparently, he brought that up with uh, his uh, Matthew Weiner's wife, his mother, and so he wanted to put that in the show. Uh, did you guys ever have that thought? I'm so like, do you remember like when that ever first occurred to you? Big time. And I thought I was such a groundbreaker for thinking it. I was like, oh, this is such a unique thought I have. I yeah. mean, it reminds a me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, not to put him on the spot, but like when my brother was younger and I found out that he's colorblind and just like imagining like, oh, like just, you know, inherently he views the world like entirely different from me. Like he, he just has a different visual plate. And I think that's kind of where I first had those kind of thoughts from just like the world as I see it, you know, even just from a co- color standpoint, is because it's totally, you know, different, but also can be very similar. So, yeah. My dad's colorblind. I love more similarities in our lives. Mm, well, we're my best dad's friends. colorblind too. Get the fuck out of here, Wait, John. Tyrone? That's actually true. Tyrone's, Tyrone's colorblind. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. I mean, he just you know he can't see black or white. He just everybody you know as I know Tyrone to be just like I'm totally loving, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, accepting him, person. People meet my father. My father, you know, both my parents are Puerto Rican, and uh, both of them are like like fairer skin. You know, like I have pretty you know whiter skin, right? Um, and uh, which is interesting because a lot of people in my family don't, but uh, they do. And Tyrone, you know, people meet him and they assume like, you know, oh, it's Tyrone, he's going to be black, you know, but no, he, he's like this Puerto Rican guy. But you meet him and you're like, oh, he's like this kind of white, maybe waspy guy. But then he starts talking and you hear his extremely thick accent and people are like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> this is too much. It doesn't help too that our name is Negroni. So his name is literally like Tyrone mm. Negroni, like in you know Negroni, like black. You know, it's it's just he, if anyone should be colorblind, I guess it is my father. Love you, Dad. Okay, I see. Yeah, we let's uh, get him on the phone. Let's uh, get He'd him into this episode. Guest. Whenever yeah, I, I try to say, explain he, to him what a podcast yeah. is, his his eyes become more colorblind. I think I said I thought I was going to say they glaze over, but I mean he likes radio, right? He loves radio, big talk radio guy. You know, I grew up on, you know, the Rush Limbaugh was always playing in the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, but he, he doesn't get the podcast thing. Um, I, he gets it. I shouldn't say that. He, he, I think to him, a podcast is just like a downloaded radio show. So yeah. like me doing something like this, sort of like, well, when was it on the radio? That doesn't make any sense. But uh, maybe uh, I'm not giving enough credit. I'll ask him. You have to do your best Rush Limbaugh now, John. You brought him up. Give it to us. Snurgly. What is, yeah, uh, I, I haven't practiced was, it. What does Rush Limbaugh think about uh, Roger Sterling in this episode? Nothing at all. He's Nothing. Dead. He's dead. Yeah. Well, you didn't watch him. it when it came out, you don't think? I mean, this isn't like a new thing, this episode. Um, I could see a guy, like, I think conservatives do watch, like, you know, firebrand conservatives who are actually kind of liberal. Yeah. I think they do watch a lot of, like, shows like this, um, or at least they were at the time. But I, I mean, you yeah, know, you can. 
I was gonna say like there are certainly like conservatives who like watch you know like something like Sopranos and then like just like the the commentary and the things they're they're saying just kind of go over their head. Well, it, it's it either like, goes over their head or they just choose to like accept what they like and reject what they don't and just take it as it is. Sure. Like I remember I would do that when I was very conservative, like growing up that way. Mm-hmm. And like you you would watch things like I knew stuff was like painted liberal or painted whatever, uh, commie, you know, but sure. you. You could compartmentalize, right? All right, yeah. So uh, when can we get Tyrone on the show? Be interesting, you know? He'd be like, ah, the good old days. Like, Dad, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Paul's God. like, uh, Paul has some some moments in here that were kind of like a little risque for television. It was funny because I was reading some of the old reviews that came out when this episode came out, and not everybody understood that he was uh, masturbating in his office, which I found kind of funny. But if you listen to the commentary, Michael Gladys is like, and here's the part where I masturbate. And apparently in a, a scene that they cut, he had, he like licked his hand and they were like, Ugh. no, no, you can't do. No, we can't put that in a TV show, man. Pretty gross. Yeah. He's a dirty dog in the zip. He had a great idea. Um, we get to, to meet the, in the office. Had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the great idea came later. Do you guys relate with that whole thing of like coming up with an amazing idea and then losing it? Yeah, no, I don't jerk off in the office. I mean, if that's not what you're that asking. part, <laughs> I think they call it post nut clarity, John. <laughs> Maybe it was, yeah, yeah I would. A, I would blame it more on the jazz, personally. The jazz, the combination of the jazz, the post nut clarity, and then meeting the, a friendly stranger, and don't forget the booze. The booze, yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, no, have you guys ever had an idea, and then it just mm-hmm. poof, as as a uh, Peggy says, poof. Not honestly, not really. You know, my job in sales, you know, it is a little bit creative, but it's a lot of like a similar thing that you're eating creative on and just finding new avenues to do it. Um, I don't find myself in situations coming up with these brand new ideas much, Mm. but I'm sure it's different for you, John. Do you, you probably relate more with like the selling of the ideas, right? Like when Paul has to sell the Aquanet ad and kind of like, you know, jab and juke in the, in that meeting, like that's gotta be like your day to day. Yeah, no, I definitely, I really relate with that, especially with, with people who are like, you know, you have to read body language or respond to reactions to a certain thing you're saying to see if you want to continue going down that avenue or completely pivot to something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's more of like that, that one episode of Seinfeld where like he like writes something funny down his notepad, like 3am and then like he has to try to figure out for the rest of the episode what he wrote i feel like that's more kind of my relationship things where like at you know like 4 a.m i wake up and i'm like oh i figured out my million dollar idea and then like the next morning i read it and it's like dog peanut butter and it's like <laughs> all right well maybe next we'll get time there. we'll figure it out yeah. but no i mean are we supposed to know like from the context clues what the idea was no. or is it supposed to be deliberately pretty vague I was curious about this too. I always assumed that it was supposed to be like your imagination is better than if they had like an official canon idea. Uh, so in the commentary that Matthew Weiner does, he says that like they never came up with an idea or anything. It's just, you know, you can kind of, they try to make it purposely vague enough so that you can maybe have an idea a hint of like, okay, Achilles, um, you know, maybe it has something to do with like the way he tells that story. But then Michael Uppendahl, you know, he, he directed it in a way so that like Paul does bring it up 
right? He, he brings up that he talked to Achilles, like he did retrace his steps. He took Lois's advice um, and it didn't work. It didn't work. Like the, the idea didn't come back. So it wasn't exactly that. Um, and then when Michael Gladys is talking about it, he said that uh, they wouldn't tell him because uh, he asked, he's like, well, what is the idea? And they were like, it's the best idea that you came up with. Mm-hmm. And so he said that he came up with his own version of the idea. And then Jared Harris in the commentary is trying to get it out of him. And she's like, well, what is it? He's like, well, I can't tell you. <laughs> and then over time, like Jared Harris kind of like picks out little pieces of it. And so Michael Gladys does kind of like give a hint of like his version of the ideas. It has something to do with like Hermes and like the Greek gods and like the messenger service and something like that. But then you're like, oh, interesting. So then I could kind of see how that the idea would come out of that conversation. But then at the end, uh, Michael Gladys is like, but that probably has nothing to do with it, what the idea would have actually been if you read the text of the episode. Right. So no one knows. I mean... Like, since his name is Achilles and like the first time we see him, it's on the ladder and we like we see like his torso and his legs. I feared it was like some sort of like fall? Achilles heel <laughs> kind of thing was mm. like what he was going for. I think like the winged feet, like maybe he thought of right. the heel, but then the winged feet of Hermes is yeah. my guess. But yeah, I, I would say that I can't think of an idea that's better than what Peggy came up with. It's just fly. Red Bull gives you wings. <laughs> Western Union gives you wings. Yeah, he just he figured it out like 30 years later went back into the office and was like, I got it. And then, you know, that's how the Red Bull campaign began. Um, you guys like uh, with, with uh, Red Bull, when's the last time you guys drank Red Bull? Because I had one very recently with a vodka and it w- and watermelon, and it was disgusting. And I'm like, how do people still drink this? My Go wife ahead. has one almost every single morning. She gets oh, wow. in the car, uh, even though she works literally across the street, and she will drive out of her way to get a drink called a Rev Up, which is just a basically Red Bull soda with syrup. So when like you go in, you're her secretary, obviously. So when you go in and you're like coffee, and she's just like, no, not even a no, thank you. Like Allison, yeah. She actually hits me because I'm supposed to knock before I go in, and I kind of yeah. barged in. She's kind of angry, and the you mm-hmm. know the caffeine hasn't really hit her yet. So I get hit, I get verbally abused, and then I just have to. As long as you, you know, remember pick to pick up. up. As long as you remember to pick up her tuxedo. I think the last time I had a Red Bull was like when this episode came out. It would have been like 2009, if I recall correctly. Because mm. I remember there would be... You were more of a Four Loco guy. I didn't really have that many. I, I did have, I think, some, at least one Four Loco in uh, Like when it was college. like the real deal, though? Like yeah. it was, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, just because they were like so popular when I was uh, in, in school. But uh, yeah, I just remember like, I guess like from like 2005 to like 2009, uh, there would be like this like uh cart derby sort of thing in town and i remember like one of the promotional vendors was uh red bull and they had like these big like uh you know like display things they were trying to like give them out and i remember like that was the first time i tried red bull i was like oh this is disgusting and then like for years i would just like try to avoid it but then like it got so hot that was like well it's something because i can't get water so i just remember i would drink those and try to hydrate and just get too much energy or whatever Speaking of something completely unrelated, I, I did also want to bring up that I, I like how this episode, I didn't pick up on it until this new like rewatch and everything, but I like how there's a lot of like connecting to the past in this um, in multiple ways, because there's the obvious thing where Bert is looking at that picture and he's thinking about how like, you know, they, they started Sterling Cooper in the 1920s and all this time has passed and he doesn't want to like relive the past because it reminds him of the people who he, he's lost. And then you also have like other threads of that, of like they're trying to sell a telegram, which is so old fashioned, it kind of feels like the the main conflict of this episode, like trying to sell the past, trying to like adjust to the future. There's like little touches, you know, there's, there's that whole thing where, um, you know, even a little thing like the money in the drawer, when Betty breaks into it and breaks into it, she just opens it, right? Um, 
and she sees like all the money and to her it's like no big deal it's not something that would shock her that somebody would keep that much money in the desk and i've, I've always found that kind of interesting but according to weiner they said that that was actually really common back then because this is after the great depression and people didn't trust banks to put all their money in uh, for good reason and so like yeah just like how the old-fashionedness is like really crawling all over this episode it's a nice touch yeah it's also just like feels like they're setting up a you know a extended theme of defending the past especially with what's yeah. on the horizon of of don and dick yeah so so will the big question of the episode uh, betty knows or she knows something's up uh what was running through your head as all that stuff was starting to come to a head yeah, I mean, I was interested, like, how much of it was she connecting and how much of it was just, like, a total blur. Because, obviously, she was going to confront Dawn and try to get answers. But, like, at this point, I'm not exactly sure what she can discern from that box and how much she actually is still just kind of totally in the dark about who Dawn is. But, obviously, like, the fact that Dawn had been previously married, kept that total secret from him. Is It seems to be a big red flag for, for Betty. And, and the big thing, obviously, is that she just doesn't know her husband, which has been <laughs> true for this whole show. But like now it seems to be crystal clear to Betty. And and yeah, I do feel bad for uh, for her because she's like realizing her life, uh, or at least her marriage, is a, you know, a lie. So uh, yeah. I'm curious to see where that goes uh, for the rest of the season. Yeah, like the cliffhanger, right? I mean, I can just imagine, I remember like watching that and just being like, what, when is she going to confront him? And, and then they keep prolonging it and prolonging mm. it. And like, just to make you sit there and like with Betty listening to Roger, like it's so fake, right? Because like he's saying all this stuff about Don and she has to sit there and grin it, grin and bear it. And mm. uh, I, I love too how like earlier in the episode, to put a finer point on it, Roger just, he has so much contempt for Don, hates his guts. And so like none of this is genuine. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just the show really like digging at the whole thing of how fake people really are to the point where I've been listening to these commentaries more and more. And I, I've been kind of unclear about this or on the fence about this, but like, I kind of wonder if Matthew Weiner is like low key a sociopath. That's a pretty heavy accusation, but there, I think he clearly has like some darkness, like some kind of like moral grayness to his own sort of like, it, it reminds me of like somebody who's really into Ayn Rand, which I know has been brought up in this show a lot. And it's, it's complicated though, because he's not like a, he's not a reactionary kind of guy. He's just kind of like, I don't know. He he strikes me as like a Bert, Bert Cooper might be the character he relates with the most, maybe. Just want to put that out there. I mean, I've kind of figured that was the case, but yeah, he kind of beat me to the punch as far as saying that. <laughs> Makes you wonder. Like, what, I wonder what his son, if we could have uh, his son on the show, you know, Glenn Bishop himself and, and just get all the tea. I'm sure he would spill it, right? Guess we'll have to wait and find out. So in terms of the, like, Sterling Cooper getting sold, what do you, what do you think about that too, Will? Because I know this is a big development. Did you kind of see this coming, though, that, like, like just the, the precarious situation they were in with Y&R? Well, I mean, it's not officially sold yet. It's just that it's, well, it's going on be... the market. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, it didn't look promising <laughs> when they were mm -hmm. laying off like half the staff and that, you know, uh, you know, it, it just never seemed like they were on sure waters and and had any like trust uh, in the company as far as. Yeah, it's like uh, a false sense of security. After yeah, because you're like, oh, it's over now. But, but no. yeah, I mean, uh, but I think Lane uh, is at a point now where he is not only like alienated from the office and like the country, but like in his marriage. Cause he, I think he has some sort of like desire to stay in uh Sterling Cooper and like make it. And I feel like he, he feels like he connects more in this office place and he seems to have a little bit more uh, confidence now than he did at the beginning of the season, as far as talking 
to Bert and even Roger. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm, uh, it's not looking great for the comp. I was thinking of you a lot, Mike, during that scene with like Lane and his bosses. And I'm just because I know like you've gone through so much corporate nonsense in terms of like just people treating this stuff like people's livelihoods, you know, and just being like, oh, you know, they, it's so callous of like you, you made it lean. You fired all these people and now you're just going to upend everybody's life. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the sad reality, especially, you know, for the people at the top. It's at the end of the day, it is all a numbers game and maximizing profits, especially if you're getting ready to sell, because then, you know, that's all these layoffs happen, right? When there's an economic downturn, but then it can also happen when you're at your best because you want to maximize what you are valued at and the less employees you have, the less billable hours you have, the more profitable your company seems. And so definitely yeah. resonate with that. Um, it's also just so interesting to see, you know, as, as the show has really wrestled with, you know, who, what is your identity in relation to work? And to see it through the eyes of, of Lane, who, you know, obviously has been his number one priority in life. Um, and it, it still is, but now there's like the dichotomy of it's still to the, is it to the company or is it, you know, is your job, your company, or is it the people who actually work there? Because there's a there's a big difference between the two now more than there ever has been. I do love the little peek we get into the uh, like the British office because it's like the first time we've really seen any sort of office space outside of Sterling Cooper in the show. I was show. waiting to see Ricky Gervais. So I was, yeah. Sure. <laughs> no, you're right, though, how, it, yeah. you kind of see the city, right? And it's like a little bit darker. The decor right. is different. They put a lot of effort into it. Yeah, just like it's like muddier looking. It's like yeah. darker. It just it's more kind of uh it's like spaced out but like there's just like an emptiness to it that's really stark compared to like kind of the the more homey uh brighter office space that we see in sterling cooper and yeah i mean like that was a really cool interesting touch and i mean you know considering how they treated the um uh, who, the guy got his foot uh cut off like how yeah, they're yeah. just like well he's gone like they're, they 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 have demonstrated before they're pretty you know cold Cutthroat. about yeah, cut through about these things. So yeah, that wasn't really a shock for me. And Lane even as, like, mentions he's like nobody's asked me where I've gone to school, you know, right. and it kind of hinting at that very British sort of like your identity is tied to these things, you know, and it's like that's your mm. value, that's your worth. Uh, it's it all kind of flows together, doesn't it? Um, I I have a I should write this down, unlike Paul, but um, I I have been kind of noodling, especially in this season, with this like Mad Men pitch, you know, this like sort of like essay about how I don't think Matthew Weiner at all intended this. But I think you could view the entire series as like a tribute to like how capitalism can feasibly like transition into like a workers rights democracy, um, not specifically unions, but just the way that like, you know, you see the dysfunction of Sterling Cooper uh, constantly like these people at the top making all the decisions and nobody else getting a say. And I think Mad Men is like almost kind of unintentionally like a show that can help like educate people on like why it's important uh, for people to like own you know, part of the company and for that to like, that's what really drives things like productivity and creativity and all those things. Um, it would be an ambitious pitch, but, uh, you know, I, I, I gotta write it down here. I just, I've been drinking all this booze and, uh, Will's John, take your hand music. out your pants. <laughs> Put that down, John. Um, <laughs> grabbed the wrong pen. <laughs> oh, that's, that's mean a little bit. Um, but okay, uh, we should probably talk about Don's affairs. Uh, I know I promised this earlier, but uh, Will Ashton, Don's affair with Suzanne Farrell. I know it's it's a bigger one, and uh, last season we really just had him with Bobby Barrett, right? Uh, what do you what do you think of this affair compared to that? Which I think I would say was definitely a low point. A lot of people would, 
a lot of people look at the affairs of like the first season, just in terms of the storytelling, not in terms of like, go Don, do that. Uh, but just in terms of him, you know, fooling around with other women and like what it means to his identity and all that stuff. First season, we had like Midge and Rachel. Uh, this season, it's really just her. Uh, but now that it's kind of developing into something a little bit more specific and tangible, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think we talked about a little bit last week. I mean, I think so well, far... This is where it's really happening. All they did was kiss last week. Relax. Sure. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, I kind of joked or quipped that, you know, she's my favorite Gomar so far for Dawn, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously referring to Sopranos. But yeah, I mean, I think there's just something really fascinating about her where it kind of goes back to, um, I think it was with... Rachel, where like whenever we see Don intimate with uh, Suzanne, it does feel like he isn't really the Don persona. Like when they're in bed yeah. together, uh, even like that moment where uh, before Don meets uh, Suzanne's brother, like the look on his face expresses this sort of like intimacy and innocence that's more akin to Dick than it is Don. Like he doesn't feel He's more relaxed, right? Yeah, he just doesn't feel it's like when need. he was with uh, Anna Draper last season. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said about it does feel like this, uh, you know, I mean, not to say an affair is good for Don, because uh, obviously it's not. He's a married man with children. I think children, you kind of said that last episode. I think we all did. I'm just like, right. oh, good. Don's having an affair. Now right. he's going to have the best ideas. <laughs> right. And I mean, it does seem like, I don't know, it's not like he's like fully back to normal, but he does seem a little bit more present and a little bit more like. Got his mojo. Uh, yeah, he's got his mojo a little bit back in there a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know. As much as I can enjoy Don, uh, you know, cheating on his wife, uh, I think this is a, I don't know, I like Suzanne. I mean, I think she's something... so fucked up. It's his kid's teacher. I know. <laughs> Two miles away from this house. It's dangerous yeah. stuff. But I mean, I think that's what makes it all the more tantalizing, right? But I think it's just interesting, too, because I forget if it was last week or the episode before, but she was talking about like how resistant she was to doing this fair because he's like oh we're, you're close to your kids your family people know me in this town people know you in this town all this stuff but now she's like kind of like open like she visited him on the train and you know like she wants her, him to meet her brother and all this stuff and I mean, once yeah, you get that dick i mean uh, whitman once I mean, you get uh, that dick whitman yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. Mean, I think he kind of uh you know you know what it is about the affair though i think she they just like genuinely like each other it, that's why i think it's it it's happening the way it is. Like, I just think that they generally want to be around each other. They're nice to each other. They have intimate conversations and there's real chemistry. I feel kind of opposite about it. And I feel like, I think what attracts Dawn to her is that Dick Whitman side of him. I think that's who he would have. A person like that is who he would have chosen. A school teacher, a simple life, um, instead of going for someone like Betty because he was going for the status and what he was supposed to do as as Dawn. But it kind of feels like she like i think she likes dawn i think she you know is this a school teacher who lives in a you know in someone's garage attachment that you know is common today but back then w- would be even like way more looked down upon and very i think lower living in, in, in class um and i think she's like likes the idea of like this successful man he's mysterious you know i disagree dad. completely no i don't way. think I think the Dawn thing, I think she has lust for Dawn to be certain, but I think like the real, like the, like where love could blossom. I think that's when she gets to know the real him when they're like in bed. And like, that's where I think she's the most relaxed and like really falling for him. I just, I mean, she, she seems so juvenile. I feel like she's just looking for a responsible man to take care of her because no, she's been a, she's, she's taking a care of her brother. She's a hippie. She, she wants to have sex because it feels good. 
and she gets that, but then she also gets the, like the connection. And I think that she's like thrilled that like, here is a guy that can satisfy both sides of like her desire. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, to me, I think the reason why she feels more comfortable being open uh, with Dawn is because I think initially, like you're saying, like, I think she was attracted to the Dawn Draper persona. Yeah, we all I think agree with the that. reason, yeah. but I think the reason why the affair is blooming is because Dawn now is showing like that poetic side to himself and she's seeing that like kind of more, you know, uh, open California side that we saw in season two, where, you know, like the, the, the side of him that feels more understanding and expressive and creative and all that stuff. I think that's why she wants to blossom this relationship more is because she's like, you know, peeling back the layers and seeing that this man she was initially, yeah, this man initially she has felt like an attraction to is actually someone that she's compatible with. And it's just, I think it's very similar to what happened with Don and Rachel um, in a lot of ways, but obviously like the context is totally different. Um, But yeah, I mean, I will just say still, for the record, Rachel Rachel Mankin number one, still on my list. I'm a little undecided. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe I'm Team Betty and I just can't admit it. Uh, Why not Don and Rebecca Price? Why not? Um, I did I did want to bring up too uh, something that has always really grabbed me about this episode, where like you really feel that like when the brother comes into the picture and Don is like very uncomfortable. It reminds me. I think it should remind the audience a lot of his own brother of adam and like there's so many cues to that and like it it kind of gets me like the way that he is he's very uncomfortable at first it's just like when his brother kind of barges into his life but you see that he has grown up he Mm -hmm. has learned his lesson in that respect and he decides not to just cart somebody off with a bunch of money he's like here's my card and like i think he feels like this kid could go down the same path his brother did and it's like, I, I got to be here for him because I see him as like that. Uh, you know, I see him as like my shot at redemption intact. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 sad. It's harrowing. And it's it's one of those things where like the brother obviously doesn't give a crap about Don. <laughs> He's just like, whatever, dude. I don't know. What I don't care about you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's that especially. Um, but I think there is like it kind of goes back to um, the episode earlier this season where he picks up like the what he thinks is like this, you know, newlywed couple that's like trying to start their own life. I think there is an attraction to him to like this younger, freer lifestyle where like people can change and adapt on their own will. But I think especially that scene that you're referring to, like at the end where like the light, the overlight, the overhead lights are on and he's like giving yeah. him money and stuff. It's like very much. Like, yeah, very much the him trying to like uh, reconcile with the loss of Adam and like, you know, trying to like kind of push it forward and being like, spiritually, I'm giving this to Adam, not Rachel's brother, who uh, I feel like in season one, he would have just been like as dismissive of him as maybe like those hippies where he's like, whatever, like you can do it's your life. You can, you know, mess up however you want. But yeah, I mean, I think there is just something very Adam like about this kid that he he wants to be protective of. Well, it kind of feels like it starts going down that road, right? And that's the growth you see in Don because he starts like, you know, it's not too late for you to do this. Like you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like he does that <laughs> whole speech. But then the important thing is that he actually listens when the brother responds with like, actually, I can't. Like I yeah. have a medical condition that stops me from doing this, which I think for me is also very sad to see because, you know, I, I don't think the show ever outright really says it, but he's epileptic, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that's the, and something, you know, so treatable these days, right? Accommodations are made for it. Like, you know, just 
20, 30 years later, and he would have such a completely different life compared to what he receives. But Don listens to that and he understands like, you know, you're right. This, you do have a different situation. Not everybody is like me and can do the same exact things. Right. Right. Where you've already, you've seen him just trying to make replicas of himself everywhere else with, with Adam, with Peggy, wherever it is. So I thought that was interesting to see, but he still lies. He still lies to Suzanne when he comes back. Yeah. Uh, I do appreciate, by the way, since you brought up Peggy, uh, I mean, I, I love the way I love all the Don Petty stuff in this. It's not a lot, but just like that moment when she takes Paul's sort of like offhanded remark about the faintest ink and she's able to like remix it into an idea. And then she like builds on it with Don, like in the room on the fly. And like Paul's look at her like the first time I watched this show. Uh, many, many times ago, that's always stuck with me. That realization he has where he's like, my God, like he realizes that A, she's better than him and B, like he is just, I think that he kind of like realizes something about himself of like, this is not what I'm meant to do because it's not something that I don't think it brings him like full fulfillment. This has been my personal read. I don't know if it's something that uh, it's something everybody would agree with. But yeah, I, I, I watch this and I just see it's like a big a, a stirring in Paul. Of like, you know, maybe maybe advertising is not, the you know, the thing just because it makes me money. Uh, we've seen over the course of the show. Paul constantly battling with this idea of like being more bohemian and, you know, he wrote that whole play, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think that uh, it's a very, very stark moment for, for our one Paul Kinsey. So I know, Will, you were upset that uh, unlike Paul, you know, you know, there's no Sal in this episode. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, tried to I, tell I you. definitely, I definitely, well, sure. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I was hoping it would be like the sort of the poochie thing where like every time Sal's not in the room, characters are asking where Sal, when Sal coming back, I miss Sal, uh, <laughs> you know, all that, but we I didn't get that. There's something to we, that, right? That everybody's moved on already. That, that new guy yeah. is, or not new guy. He's been in the show since season one, but like, yeah. he just kind of takes Sal's place and everyone's just like, yep, move forward. Fu- fuck that guy. He's such a poser. He I thinks he can way. come in. Have the same chemistry and the you know wit, <laughs> the same debonair, yeah, sass. debonair, yeah. <laughs> How dare he? He, he would have said about know. the he would have had the Aquanet in his hair, Sal, and he would have sold yeah. it so well. Right, that's what I was thinking too. I was just like, man, Sal would have sold this role, and this guy is just <laughs> a poser. Just thinks he can put it on. That's all he has to do. <laughs> Get this guy. It, raw man died. Sorry, Will. Sorry, you had to go through that. Well, I'm, I'm just glad that, you know, eventually Sal's going to come back and rectify this whole thing. <laughs> um, I do want to mention, uh, since you bring up Sal, Lois, she didn't get fired after after the lawnmower thing. I have an answer to this. I know why now. I've wondered this for years and years. I'm like, is this a continuity thing? <laughs> like, how does Lois still have her job? It doesn't make any sense. I have the answer. But first, I want to open the room. Do either of you have a theory or you know the answer already? Why does Lois still have her job? There is a reason. Isn't it because uh, she, you know, uh, what's his face, takes a fall for it? He says like it was his fault or like because he brought in like the lawnmower and blah, blah, blah. No. And like went to bat. I, I don't think that's really it. No. You could maybe was read it? that part into it maybe as being part of the calculation. But I think there's a stronger uh, motivation here. I don't know. Will's pondering. He's got his pondering face on. I don't know. I mean, did they just kind of consider it like a freak accident and 
No. Believe that? No. Did they like it? Are they glad it happened there because it they is. fucking hated the guy? <laughs> because yeah. so according to Matthew Weiner, he said he said in the commentaries like people keep asking me this, and I'm like, it's very simple. She saved the company, <laughs> and they decided like her doing that, like Roger in particular, because they hated this guy and they knew that he'd be the end of it, and they kind of felt a little gratitude toward her. Um, that's the reason. And I'm like, you know what? Sure. You got us there, Matt Weiner. You got us. I love the idea of her saving the company. Like they add her to the masthead. Or like it, like <laughs> it comes a logo. It's just like her on the lawnmower with her bow legged. Sterling Cooper Lois. She just fails her way to the top. <laughs> yes. No, she defects, obviously, to go work for Chauncey, but he rightfully fires her. Um, her ideas are garbage. Yeah. Um, I don't have too much else here. I was going to ask you guys if... Uh, you know, so we do have the, I mentioned this before about how Roger, he just hates Don right now. We've been kind of tracking this over the course of the season. I just wanted to bring it up again of like, it's starting to feel like sometimes like when he's saying this stuff about Don, he doesn't mean it, but he does have, he has this bitterness toward Don and like, where do you guys think that's really coming from? Like, what do you think the state of that is at this moment with Roger looking at Don and just being like, screw him which we know he's really saying fuck him but it's on tv um do you buy it do you what do you think is behind that well i mean we've been seeing him get increasingly more insecure about himself i think i think that's a big reason why he had the affair and subsequent new marriage uh with jane who we finally get to see again uh this week in this episode uh after it's been a while since she's been here right since my old i think Kentucky Kentucky, Yeah. yeah um Right yeah, I, mean, I think does Mona know? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there is like a resentment um, as far as like Don left for a long time. I think he feels like he has kind of abandoned his post, which he did. Uh, and like, he's kind of the reason like things are going to shit right now in the company. Cause he wasn't there to be Don Draper and, and do what was necessary. And now he's just kind of coming in and like thinks he owns the place. And, uh, yeah, I think that's eating at uh, Roger's increasing insecurity. It's hard for me to, to comment on this because I, I have a hard time separating, like s- taking what I know and putting myself in like just right here in this moment with, with Roger and Don because their relationship is so intertwined and, and complicated throughout the course of the series. Yeah, it is but tough. I, I, I would say, you know, I, I would agree with, with Will. I think a, a lot of it comes from an insecurity and, and you know, professional jealousy. You know, we're, we're not too many, we're not too many episodes removed from uh, Roger not even being on the goddamn chart well, and getting yeah. etched in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. To, to was, Don getting an award for, and being the main right. guy at this, at this ceremony. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, guy walks yeah. into an advertising agency. That was four episodes ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, like, his name's, like, on the company and stuff, but he feels, I feel, like, uh, kind of superfluous at the moment. And he feels like it's really, like, Don and Lane and and Bert that's kind of running things at this point. And, and Bert even seems to be having sort of a, uh, a doubt of faith at the moment as well, which is sad to see. Yeah. Uh, I feel like he needs to open up that Atlas Shrug again or the Fountainhead to <laughs> warm up his spirits. But, um, yeah, I mean... They're, they're just waning spirits over at that Sterling Cooper, except for it Peggy, is. except for Peggy. Um, you know, I would say too, yeah, because I agree with you guys. I I would add that, like, it, I think like Roger, he just feels like Don has like totally rejected him, 
And the thing that I like most about their dynamic is that I think that they're they're a very interesting they're an interesting case study in like male friendships and how sometimes that the way they start the way they sort of grab um, and they change over time of like season one Don and Roger were you know they were pretty like buddy buddy like Don didn't really connect with anybody else in that office it was mainly him and Roger kind of running the show but Don very much there was like a clear power hierarchy where Don really like looked up to Roger, felt reliant on Roger. And then from season two to season three, we saw more and more of like, well, first in season one, when Roger, his health issues started to like really chip away at that facade of like Don feeling like he owes this guy because, you know, as Roger reveals in this episode, Roger's the one who found him. He's the one who came across Don when Don was like nowhere near the Don he is today. He was working at a fur company. He was in night school, right? Um, so maybe there'll be more about that later. Who knows? But I think that like over the course of these seasons, as like Roger has left his wife and done all of these things, he's made all these decisions to sort of try to, you know, find a way to make himself happier. And Don has done nothing but judge that, uh, resent it to Roger's face, reject him and put on a front and also start to encroach upon his job, encroach upon his status at Sterling Cooper. And like, to have a friend do that. I think somebody that Roger genuinely saw as a friend, but I don't think Roger ever really understood the power dynamic the same way Don did. I think Roger took it for granted in a lot of ways. And that's why I think that this icy cold war between these two guys is so thick. And it's not something like Bert tries to send him off to the barbershop to talk it out. That's, it's not going to work. Like it, it's, you can't really resolve stuff like that that way. And uh, yeah, I think that just Roger at this point is just over it. He's over Don. He doesn't want anything to do with the guy anymore. Yeah, I think it is accurate that that uh, he he doesn't understand like Don does. Right. You also don't even mention him making a pass at Betty, which I think is was was the first misstep and it seems like from that moment on and then when he has to when he's getting carted out and he has to remind him your wife's name is mona i think is where like the last bit of respect as a mentor boss whatever it was and both lifestyle and career was was lost for for don and i don't think he'll ever understand that totally uh last thing i wanted to mention was uh i love the the way this this whole episode builds up to betty finding the keys you know it starts with don getting the money from lane it's set up episodes before of like signing the contract and the way that he like opens up the desk to put the you know the money in but then because baby gene cries like he he forgets to like you know he still has the keys in the robe and then we have all those scenes where like Betty is like doing laundry and it's like the tension is so thick especially on rewatch where you really understand where this is all heading, uh, it's it's really well done. Um, I think it's a shame that Michael Evendahl doesn't direct more episodes of the show. Uh, you know I I think he does do uh, one more in season four but I don't remember if he does any. I think he at least does one like once a season um, at least so. Uh, he's he's a really talented guy. Um, I'm not sure what he's up to these days. I'll call him up for you guys and, and catch up. He made Oppenheimer, did he? Yeah, <laughs> director of Oppenheimer. He's also Killian Murphy. Um, so uh, yeah, was was there anything else you guys wanted to bring up and talk? I mean, we, I think we covered it, right? What's, what else we got? I know. Oh yes, you wanted to bring up Sally's, uh, you know, sudden interest. Oh in yeah, church. yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, <laughs> Sally is on the path to righteousness, finally. Mike's I mean, shaking his head. <laughs> you know, like, after all these episodes where Sally is uh, dowsing herself in sin, uh, she's finally asking, uh, 
why don't they go to church more? Which is, you know, she's showing the path of uh, accepting Jesus and the Lord <laughs> into her heart. And I think that's a positive development. I'm excited to see where uh, Sally's uh, journey in faith goes from this point forward. I've definitely been in that situation where, like, because my family went to church every week. Hispanic, you know, like church was just like, like Carla's family. It was just like ingrained. Like you didn't miss church. It wasn't just Christmas. I didn't understand the idea of like, oh, some people only go to church like twice a year. I didn't get that until like elementary school when I would like, I went to a friend's house and it was this kind of more like Draper household, you know, it's like a little bit more upper crust. And obviously there are lots of like well-to-do white evangelical families or whatever but this was like one of those kinds like in the show where like i think somebody brought it up in the house of like because i think i brought up like oh i, I can't stay tonight because we have church in the morning and he's like you go to you go to church uh but it's not easter it's not christmas and i was like what well yeah it's but it's sunday like you what and then he was just like he looked over at his mom who was sitting there it was just like almost like kind of like sally it was just like how could we don't go every week and she was just like she just laughed. Like, I don't even remember what she said. I think she said something under her breath and just, I had caused a little bit of a snafu there. I don't know. I do like to imagine Sally going to like an AME church, which is like very like high praise, like, you know, think of sister act kind of, kind of deal. And, you know, she's there. I thought you were going to go to like the LGBT, like the Methodist kind of church where every, where it's like accepting and tippy. And... No, I'm, I'm specifically taking, I'm okay. taking Sally to black church. Like okay, you know, we're, we're there. We're having a good time. Carla's there. Carla's there, like the choir, they're doing their thing, and all of a sudden the choir splits, the spotlight opens, and there's a, comes out uh, the soloist. It's Chauncey. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say I thought you were gonna say it's the Barbie that she thinks is a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, that's who's giving the, the sermon. Yeah, there you go, there you go. That's a one two punch. Um, but yeah, and then also I think it's adorable when she does the like uh can I do it? Can I, can I answer the phone? And then both Don and Betty are on edge. Cause they think it's an, it's one of their paramours. And, uh, Sally just like, huh, they hanged up. Uh, so the hang, they hanged up line. Um, she actually cured in Shipka herself, the actress who plays Sally. She came up with that. Like she ad libbed that during the reading and they loved okay. it. So they, they put it into the show, which I thought was kind of cool. Uh, I but, read that too. Yeah. But it actually was the second ad lib line. Then that was the second take that they used. Do you know what she said? It was in the, the first? first one. No, no, I don't. She said they're. At, she says, "Oh, they're asking for Sabrina, the teenage witch. That's uh, me." <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> ask. Um, when Peggy burps, was that like in the script, or was that like no? Kind no of that a, was they. They so so Peggy in the commentary or Elizabeth Moss was like. Oh yeah, that's not my burp. I would just I can't do oh, that on okay. command. Yeah. So they they uh they ADR'd it after. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. I thought that might have been like something that like she did accidentally, but they were like, Oh, that's fine, let's put that in the episode. Yeah, it kind of comes off that way, doesn't it? Um Can you guys burp on command? Yeah. I'm not gonna do it right now. I'm a lady. Um, okay, so <laughs> but I, I do love like when Sally is just like, you know, she's just like being chill. She's just like, huh, yeah, that's weird. You know, they they heard I could hear them on the other line, huh? And then Betty's just like Goodness gracious, Sally Draper. Don't take everything so personally. <laughs> Sally's just like, geez Louise. <laughs> I love that. I just love that moment. It's so funny. That's it. I would, That's all I got. I'm just excited for the whole spinoff show, which is just Sally in therapy talking about Betty. <laughs> She's like, I don't understand this woman. <laughs> A little extra. Um, all right. Well, if that's everything, um, I guess we'll call it. And then uh, next episode, we're going to talk about the gypsy and the hobo. I know what you're thinking. We already talked. We already have a Mad Men episode called "The Hobo Code." 
Mm. Another hobo? You're right. And we're going to get to that. So we'll see you all in the next Mad Men Men. And uh, thanks for listening. Dabba dee, dabba die. Dabba dee, dabba die.